if you know from the start that we're not going to make it to our outline today. As I studied this week, the Lord impressed on my heart that we needed to take some extra time to teach a couple of important concepts in the text. So I believe it is important for us to take some time and to set up the biblical context of this passage, Ephesians chapter 2, so we can fully understand the importance of what Paul is trying to accomplish here. Now, as such, I just want you to understand it, that, um, that today will be a reminder of how Ephesians fits into the overall context of Scripture. It's funny because this morning as Jonathan was praying for us, um, he mentioned that we're not losing the sight of the forest for the trees or dropping the leaf and, and paying attention to the trees in the, in the forest. And that's exactly what we're doing. I've actually got it written here in my notes, so it's amazing how the Lord works that way. Uh, I I want to I'm taking a break next week from preaching, and so I want to take a, a a step back, and I want us to get a fresh perspective of this uh, incredible and amazing letter. And also, our time is a little bit crunched because of communion and and the right hand of fellowship today. So I want to take some time. I didn't want to inter- take the time to introduce new material, only to come back to it in two weeks. So let me let me read Ephesians two one through ten just to give us um, an understanding of where we are in the text, and then I'll pray and we'll uh, get started. Starting in verse one, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which. You formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ." By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we pray even now that you would bless this time. Father, I pray that we would be focused and that we would spend time thinking and meditating on these truths that are are being presented in your word. Father, may your truth sink deep into our heart and may we apply them through the work of the Holy Spirit in our our lives so that we may live them out powerfully according to the power which works within us, your power which raised Christ from the dead and seated him on the throne of God at your right hand. We praise your holy name in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I, I do think that this material that I'm about to present is important for all of us to comprehend to understand what is happening in Ephesians. Now, there are many things I'm about to say this morning that, that some of you have heard, heard from me. But I still want you to listen. I want you to understand the nuances of what I'm about to present. Also, I want you to realize that, 
there's several in this church who haven't heard these things. So I want to revisit some of the truths, these foundational truths, so that we can understand what is happening here in this passage. I want you to understand that I want to speak also to the youth today. We talked about last youth meeting, we talked about um, proposition statements, and we talked about understanding and, and listening to what uh, what is happening in, in what is happening in the passage. And so I want us to reset so that we fully understand how this passage is put together, and we fully understand what Paul is trying to say. And I want you as youth to make sure that you don't tune out today, because I want you to know that we're going to discuss this time, or this, this material next time we meet. Your faith when you leave here, this is, this is my burden for the youth, your faith when you leave here will be challenged. And I want to give you some foundational truths. I want you to understand what's happening in this passage so that you will be able to contend for the faith. I I want you to know that when you leave here, that you may be in grave danger of being caught up in the spirit of this age. But I want to give you some foundational truths as, as, as you are still here. I want to give you foundational truths to give you ammunition to show you that you don't have to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Beloved, and I'm, again, I'm still speaking specifically to the youth here. This world is a sham. It's an illusion. That it, ha- and it, it, it acts like, it seems like that it has much to offer. Yet, this world will never fully satisfy you. The only way to true joy is through knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, your Creator, your Maker. And when you leave here, again, I'm speaking to the youth, when you leave here, those challenges, when those challenges come, I want you to draw on the things that you've learned while you were here so that you can be strong in the faith. And again, that you can contend earnestly for the faith which was once handed down to the saints according to, to Jude. Now, I want to remind you as we look at this letter, I want to remind you of the context of this letter, the theme of this letter. I want to remind you that Paul wrote this letter to strengthen the church at Ephesus. He wrote it in order to strengthen them for their part in spreading the gospel throughout the known world at the time. At this point in church history, at the time this letter was written, churches were being planted from Jerusalem to Rome and beyond. Now, clear, Paul clearly understood that the church at Ephesus was strategic. And it was, it was strategic to the spread of the gospel. It was strategic to, to protecting these churches. It was strategic to protect the protection of the doctrine that was being taught in these young churches. You see, the, the church at Ephesus was strategically situated in Asia Minor as the first of seven churches in that, that region. And as such, as such, Paul understood that what happened in Ephesus would be handed down to the rest of the churches. He also understood that Ephesus sat as a connecting point between churches on the east and the west. And so what we find then is that Paul wants to strengthen them doctrinally so they understand what Christ is doing in the church so that they would be strengthened to be able to uh, strongly and confidently preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and help these other churches in their, as they grow into, and grow and to be established. Now, as such, Paul's letter to the Ephesians is the pinnacle of New Testament theology. 
It's the pinnacle of theology about the church and what God is accomplishing through Christ, through Christ, through His people, through the body, the church, uh, the body of Christ. Now, some people, some commentators believe that this is a one of the, a general letter that is not directly addressed to uh, the a specific church, specifically the church at Ephesus. But I believe that that Paul wrote this letter uh, to Ephesus to strengthen them. He intended that this letter, with the doctrine that it contained, be passed from Ephesus to the other churches, starting with the rest of those seven churches in Asia Minor, those churches that are mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3. Now, as I told you, I want to explain some concepts that we learned in Ephesians 1 that I think will help us as we move into Ephesians 2. The first concept that I want to visit is this, that God intended for His creation, including mankind, including men and women, to be blessed. He intended, He created His creation, He created man in order to bless Him. Now, starting in Ephesians chapter 1, we studied we studied the blessed hope of the Christian which is found in our redemption in Christ. In Ephesians 1-3, Paul writes... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, I believe that what Paul is saying here is is forms his proposition for the rest of the letter. In other words, I think that that Paul is going to prove how and when and how and how he will how this will happen. He's going to prove. Let me say it a different way. We can expect in this letter that Paul will prove that Christians have been blessed by God with every spiritual blessing. And we can anticipate that he will explain how God is doing this. Now I want you to notice in verse 3 that Paul mentions the word blessed or blessing three different times in this statement. So he clearly desires to prove that the church has been blessed by God. And I believe that he will prove that Christ uses his body, the, the church, to bless the world. The question is, what does it mean to be blessed by God? What, is it, what, is this, what does this mean? And I think we need to take the time to better understand this motif or pattern of blessing in Scripture to better appreciate the impact of Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. So in order to do that, what I want to do is turn for you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. So let's turn over to Genesis chapter 1. Now, I believe that Genesis, especially the first 11 chapters of Genesis, is foundational to our understanding of all of Scripture. I believe that, that I believe in the full historicity of the, the book of Genesis, of the Genesis account. And in Genesis chapter 1, we learned that God created the world and all that is in it, and He created it very good. He created Adam and Eve in His own image and His own likeness, to rule over His creation and to receive His blessing. Look at Genesis 1.28 with me for a moment. What it says in Genesis 1.28, actually in 1.26, it says, And God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Then look at verse 28. It says, God blessed them, 
And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Not only did God bless the man and woman, but He blessed His entire creation. If you look at verse uh, chapter 1, verse 21, it says, God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind, and God saw that it was good. Look at verse 22. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on earth. So it was God's intent then, that God's intent for the man and woman to multiply and fill the earth and to receive His blessing. It was also His intent that, his, that the creation itself be blessed. In other words, it was God's intent for man to serve Him by ruling over and filling His creation. As such, God blessed the man and woman. Now, there's another indication that God, of God's blessing in Genesis chapter 2. It says in Genesis chapter 2, look at verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were cre- are completed and all their host. And by the seventh day, God completed His work which He had done. And He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because He rested from all His work which God created and made. Now, God blessed and sanctified the seventh day of creation. This is where, this is where the Sabbath day or Sabbath rest comes from. Now, I believe that there's more here than you might realize at first glance. You see, Moses uses a formula to describe each of the six days of creation. Look at Genesis 1, 3, or 2, 3, or 1, 3, that is. What does he say? And, and on the first day of creation, God created light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness, and he called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. It was evening and there was morning one day. That, that is the formula that Paul or that Moses uses, that is, to show to, to, to close out each day of creation. The text says something very similar or the same in, in day, for day two. Look at verse eight. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. Now I would argue that Moses is speaking of normal 24-hour days, and he uses this, this formula all the way to day six. Now look at you can look at verses 13, verse 19, verse 23, and verse 31, and you see the same pattern. But on the seventh day, he doesn't use this phrase. I would argue that he does this intentionally. And nothing is nothing lacks intentionality with God, right? Look back at verse or chapter two, verse three. Look at chapter two, verse three. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which he had created and made. So what I would argue that God intended for His creation to enter an eternal Sabbath. He didn't finish the day. The day never was complete or never was, was never completed. So God's, God's intention was that earth would enter an eternal Sabbath or eternal blessing. This goes back to God's ultimate intention for His creation to receive His blessing. You see, I would argue that that God created the world in order for it to live under His blessing. I would also argue that God has always intended for the world or to return His creation and man back to a place of blessing. But this paradise of blessing would be broken by the actions of the man and woman. 
This leads us to the second con- con- concept. The first concept is that God created the world and He intended it to be blessed. Now this ties back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul said, it spoke of, of us receiving spiritual blessings from the Lord. Look at, look at, or let's look at the second concept. Men's, men's sin, or man's sin that is, separated him from his Creator, bringing condemnation, not blessing. Bringing condemnation, not blessing. In Genesis chapter 3, the, the woman was deceived, and Adam, the man, willfully disobeyed God. By his willful disobedience, the first man, Adam, plunged the whole world into sin and darkness. They disobeyed God's command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But this didn't catch God off guard in any way, right? It was part of His plan. He told Adam in in Genesis chapter 2 that the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. So Adam was commanded by Yahweh to eat, but he willfully, that is Adam, willfully disobeyed him. And instead of blessing... Instead of the blessing that God intended for them, Adam and Eve received curses. Adam and Eve were now under God's condemnation. And that's an important concept for us to understand, that, that while God intended the man and woman to, be, to live under His blessing, He intended His creation to be blessed, they received condemnation because of their disobedience. They received condemnation because of their disobedience and they did not receive blessing. Now I want to be careful to make sure you understand that God was not caught off guard by all this. And I think that we'll see that more as time goes on. As we continue. Let's look at the third third concept I want us to get. God has always intended to return mankind to this state of blessing. God has always intended to return mankind to this state of blessing. Now, I I think it's important for us to note that while God cursed childbirth and He cursed the ground, He never, this is in Genesis chapter 3, He never cursed the man and the woman. The man and the woman were never cursed. He cursed childbirth. He, He made the relationship between man and woman difficult. But he never, he never, and he cursed the ground, but he never cursed the man and woman. Amid the curses, God even, in Genesis 3.15, even promised a Redeemer who would deliver them back to the blessings of God. Remember, that is the intention that God had created the man and woman, was to bless them. This Redeemer, that this Messiah, this one who would come, would crush the head of the serpent, the head of the serpent, that would be, according to John, in 1 John, Satan, the serpent of old. You see, God pl- promised to bless mankind by reversing the effects of the fall through this promised one. He did this from the very beginning, from the very time that Adam and Eve fell in the garden. He, he set in motion at that point. He set, as he's... Handing out these curses, he set in motion the path by which the man and woman would return to blessing. I also want to point out that he drove them from the garden so that they wouldn't eat from the tree of life and live forever in their state of condemnation. 
Does that, I want to make sure that you understand that, that, that if he would have, he, it says in the text, it says in Genesis chapter 3, that, in, that lest they reach out and eat also from the tree of life, he drove them out. Because he didn't want them to stay in that, he, he didn't desire for them to stay in that state of condemnation. He desired to bless them. That was always his, his plan. Never changed. He intended to bless the man and woman despite their sinful actions. And I would say, I would argue, the rest of the Bible explains God's intention to redeem mankind and to restore them to His blessing. And this redemption, then, will demonstrate God's power to overcome the forces of sin and death. Now, as I said, this blessing motif is seen throughout the Scriptures. In Genesis chapter 12, God showed that He intended to bless the nations of the world through one man, Abraham. In Genesis 12, 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Do you think that God intended to bless the, the world through this man Abraham? The answer is yes. This promise of blessing is even further identified later as, as God showed that He intended to bless the nations through Abraham's grandson Jacob or Israel. Ultimately, in Genesis 49, this line of blessing is narrowed to Judah, one of Israel's sons. But all throughout, we see God's intention to bless the world through one man who would be called Jesus, the Messiah, who would be the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. He is the one who John says is the lion from the tribe of Judah. John And John picks up on this on this idea of this blessing by, and, and this overcoming by uh, this lion from the tribe of Judah in Revelation 5. In Revelation 5, verse 1, it says, I saw in the right of hand of him uh, one uh, who sat on the throne, a book written inside and on the back and sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And it says in, Ro- in Revelation 5.5, 5, it says this, And one of the elders said to me, stop, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome as to open the book and its seven seals. Beloved, this is the Lamb who was slain, the Lord Jesus, the promised one from Genesis 3.15. According to John, he has overcome. What has he overcome? He has overcome sin and death, and he will restore blessing to his people. If you turn to Revelation 21 quickly. Looking in Revelation 21.1. John writes, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no, no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these things are faithful and true. Now look at Revelation 22, which describes our lives in the, he, in the, he, he, in the new heaven and new earth. Look at verse 14. Notice what it says. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter it by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. You see, you see as I, wanted, I said earlier, God... And God's intention has always been to bless mankind, and He will ultimately do so when He fully redeems His creation. You see, in Christ, he will be rest- we will be restored to the full spiritual and physical blessings which, were, which are far greater than we could ever imagine. In Christ, in Christ we have received, received and will receive incredible blessings abundantly beyond what we could ever dream we will dwell with christ forever and we will receive the fullness of him so in ephesians chapter 1 when when paul states that god has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in christ he's referring to this pattern of god's blessing beginning in genesis chapter 1 and working its way through all the way to Revelation 22, as we see the culmination of all things where mankind will be with God in, in the new heavens and new earth, and God will bless mankind fully. You see, Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, gives the proposition of the entire letter. And what he's saying is, is what he wants to do is he wants to prove that God has truly blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he intends to reveal God's plan to do this. So that we as a church can go forth confidently knowing what Christ intends to do in his church, by his church, through his church. Fourth concept that I want us to understand is that Adam's sinful actions brought about spiritual and physical death to all men, all mankind, leaving, leaving us in a state of condemnation. We've already kind of seen this, but back, back in Ephesians 1.7, Paul writes this, In Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. You see, we have been purchased from slavery to sin and forgiven of our sins. Christ came to this earth and died for us, died for our sins on the cross. He suffered the wrath of the Father, the wrath that we deserved, yet He conquered the grave. And now He sits at the right hand of the Father on His throne in the heavenly places. But we have to answer this this question. Why do we need to be redeemed? What are we being redeemed from? If you turn back to Genesis chapter 2, Turn back to Genesis chapter 2, look at verse verse 8. 
says, The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there He placed the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God caused every tree that is pleasing in, caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and, and good for food. And the tree of life also in the, was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in verse 15 we see that, that the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Verse 16 says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Now I want to focus on this warning, that in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Now we have to answer the question, what does God mean by that? What does he mean that you shall surely die? Well, let's look at Genesis chapter 3. It says in Genesis chapter 3 that the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall eat from any tree of the garden. And then the woman said, we, that, that from the tree, trees of the garden we may eat, but from the tree of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, Shall not eat from it, or touch it, or you will die. And the serpent said, sneered at the woman, if you will, because you see it in the Hebrew text, we see this. It says that, he says, you surely will not die. For God knows in the day that you eat from it that your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, what I want you to, what I want you to see here is that they went ahead and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, they, so, they, so they took from it and eat, and she gave to her husband and he ate as well. That's in verse 6. And then, and then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the, then the Lord God called, verse 9, to the, to the man and said to him, Where are you? And then he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Now let me ask you a question, or let me just make a statement. There's something missing here, right? Do dead men speak? Dead men don't speak, right? God has said you will surely die. Yet, here they are, speaking. Here they are hearing God. Here they are hiding from God. So, they didn't die, right? At least they didn't physically die. You see, when we think of death, we generally think of physical death, right? Physical death is an ever-present threat to us, right? I remember the first time I saw a dead person. There was a terrible accident in front of our home. When we made it to the car, the man took his last breath of air. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget the first time death hit me as a, as a, a young man when my brother at the age of five passed away from meningitis. Yeah, it was it was tragic to me that someone in my that I knew so close had died. But have you ever asked yourself why we physically die? Have you ever asked yourself why death is a thing? You see, to us, death, physical death, that is, is as natural as breathing. Every living thing in our world eventually dies. But why is that? Well, 
from Genesis chapter 3, God promised them that they would surely die. So physical death then is an indirect result of the fall. What is the direct result, you might ask? Separation from the author of life himself. I would argue that when man fell, he was separated from God. And instead of receiving the blessings of God, he received the wrath of God and condemnation for his sin. This is spiritual death. They are dead without knowing they are dead. And spiritual death then leads to physical death. All you need to do is look at the rest of Genesis to see this play out. If you look at Genesis 4, 1-8, what happens with Cain and Abel? Cain murdered, he killed his brother Abel. So we see that spiritual death leading to physical death. Then we see, if you turn to, to, to Genesis 5, what does it say over and over and over? So all the days that Adam lived, verse, chapter 5, verse 5, were 930 years and he died. So go, go down to verse 8. And all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. So go down to verse 11. And all the days of Enos were 905 years and he died. You see, because of the spiritual death, because of the separation from the author of life, man physically died. Romans 5.12, Paul says, Therefore, just as one through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So which death is Paul talking about here? Is he talking about, is he talking about the spiritual death, which includes condemnation, the condemnation of God, or is he talking about physical death? I believe he's, I believe he's speaking about a third kind of death. Eternal condemnation. Eternal condemnation for those who have rejected Him on earth. You see, this is a death that Adam and Eve faced if, they had not, if God had not intervened. This is the death that we all faced if not for the work of Christ. This is the death that all those who reject Christ in this world face. This is the death that, that John speaks of in Revelation 2.11 he says, who, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. This is the eternal death in the lake of fire that John, the Apostle John describes in John 20, 14. So it follows that all men then are spiritually dead from the beginning, from the very beginning of physical life. They are spiritually dead from conception. Additionally, men face, all men face physical death, judgment, and eternal death. Beloved, every one of you here will live forever. Everyone sitting here will live forever. The question is whether you will live forever with Christ, blessed by Him as He intended, or if you will live eternally separated from Him, receiving His condemnation and wrath. Now let me close the loop back to Ephesians to give us context for what Paul is talking about. And as we do, I hope 
I hope that you're preparing your hearts for the Lord's table in just a few minutes. Let's look at a fifth concept I want us to, to grasp. In Christ, in Christ, we have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and we get to share this good news with the world as the church. Let me say that again. In Christ, we have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and we get to share this good news with the world as the church. So when Paul, in in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, speaks of blessing, he speaks of God putting man back into a right relationship with him. He speaks of man dwelling with God for eternity. But for this to happen, God must have the power to overcome sin and death. Look at Ephesians 1.20. It might be a minute or two. No. Look at Ephesians 1.20. says in Ephesians 1.20, says these are in, in starting in 19 these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places you see Paul says that God's power toward us who believe has been proven by the fact that Christ raised, Christ that he raised Christ from the dead thus defeating death and in doing so he demonstrated that he defeated sin and its condemnation at the cross in 118, Paul states that as, as believers, the eyes of our hearts have been enlightened so that we will know the hope of His calling. Well, what is that hope? What is the hope of His calling? Well, we've established that we are spiritually dead and that we face physical and eternal death. In Ephesians 2.1, Paul says the same thing. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But Paul is very personal here. He wants each person to recognize that their predicament outside of Christ. You see, Paul is talking about spiritual death. You are spiritually dead because of your trespasses and sins. This is the same death that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. In other words, if you are an unbeliever here today, you are a dead man walking. You are alienated from God and you have no hope in this world. You are without any hope. John MacArthur says this, a spiritually dead person is alienated from God and alienated from life, having no capacity to respond. They are spiritual zombies, the walking dead, who do not know that they are dead. They go through the motions of life, but they do not possess it. End quote. But not only that, you live according to the spirit of this age, which is ruled by the current ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air. See, not only are you a dead man walking, but you are a doomed man walking outside of Christ. You are doubly dead with no hope. You can't help but indulge in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. You are a child of wrath, and you have no hope for the blessing of God. Now, you may say that sounds harsh. Well, it is. But I would be... I would rather be guilty of sounding harsh while telling the truth of what those outside of Christ face. You see that God in Christ has demonstrated the matchless power by raising Him from the dead and seating Him at His right hand far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And He has been given power over all these things, even sin and death. 
So again I ask, what is the hope of His calling? You see, Paul wants believers to have true hope in the redemptive work of Christ to save us and to restore us to a place of blessing in a right relationship with our Creator. And when He does this, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit who is given as a down payment for our full redemption in Christ. He then places you into His body, the church, which is the fullness of Christ. John Calvin says this, the whole comes to this, that Christ, when He produces faith in us by the agency of His Spirit, at the same time engrafts us into His body that we would become, become partakers of all spiritual blessings. End quote. In other words, we experience His blessings here on earth as we interact with the, as the body of Christ and as we share the good news of the gospel, which is a foretaste of the blessings that we will experience in the future when we dwell with Him forever. You see, Christ has overcome the curse. He has overcome sin and death. And instead of experience, experiencing His wrath for sin, you get to experience the fullness of His blessings. And that's Paul's point. When you have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, if you're in Him. Now, like I said, in just a few moments, we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper together. Let me close with this final encouragement. In Ephesians 2, 5 and 6, Paul writes, Even when you were dead in your transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Beloved, the great truth is that before Christ you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You had absolutely no hope in this world. Yet while we were hope in this hopeless and helpless condition, according to Paul in Romans 5, Christ died for the ungodly. He received the wrath and condemnation, the, the, the wrath that is, that we deserved. Yet we received His mercy. We in Christ have received mercy and we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And why did He do all this? Why did He do all these things? Why did He allow sin to enter the world? Why did He allow uh, His good creation to, to be infected with sin? Why did He allow us to, to be condemned? Verse 7, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So that He might show His grace. So that we might praise Him forever. You see, salvation, beloved, is all of grace. All of grace. From start to finish. Beloved, it is that great truth that Paul finishes this section by saying, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of, of God. We get to receive in Christ, because of what Christ has done, we get to receive all the blessings of God.
Though we, though we were separated from Him, though we were spiritually dead, though we were helpless, though we could not have done anything of ourselves, God in His mercy has saved us through faith by His grace. What a wonderful truth, right? What a wonderful truth. It says in Ephesians 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And Paul brings it full circle and says, look, He's done this so that He might get the glory so that you might go out and make more disciples of Christ. Now we're going to have a time of communion here. As we remember what Christ has done on the cross. You see, this is all academic if we leave it that way. But Christ, while you were separated from Him, while you were spiritually dead, helpless, Christ died for you, the ungodly one. As I said, we're going to enter a time of communion. I just want to remind you that communion is for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. just want to remind you also that, that communion is for those who are in a right relationship with Him, and having confessed sin. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It says in verse 28, But a man must examine himself, and in doing so he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. So we give an opportunity in communion, we give an opportunity for you to confess sin. We want you to to make sure that when you partake in communion, remembering the Lord's death, you're remembering what Christ has done, that in Christ you receive the blessings when you deserve condemnation. You see, in Christ we have received mercy. We receive that which we do not deserve. So I want you to take some time and, and confess. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we, off, we, we you're welcome to partake with us. I'd like to have, as we are singing a song with Noah, I'd like to have the men begin to pass out the elements.